Hello, and welcome to The Paper Crane, a podcast from Cozen the Clouds and a Misspent Youth Productions. My name is Kieran. I'm Stephen. I'm Jack. And I'm Joe. And this week's guest is none other than one of our favourite comedians, well, definitely one of my favourite comedians, Hari Kondabolu. And I am still in utter shock that we got to chat with him. <laughs> oh, universally loved Hari Kondabolu. I think, uh, Joe, Steve, you were slightly more composed than I was. I definitely, yeah, was a lot cooler than you in this yeah. interview. Having edited it, um, yeah, a lot of the gushing has been removed. You're gushing. <laughs> oh, you should have kept that in to humanise the robot and his image. No, 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 no Kieran's got a, a very uh, strong reputation in the robot community. Mm. And I would I, never tarnish that. I sort of mentioned it uh, last week, but maybe I appeared cooler than you, Kieran, because I was just sort of watching the screen like the telly. Just I like mean... I was watching Netflix for, for the first bit. <laughs> I, then I sort of realised he was talking back. Too much. <laughs> we there is a real chance at the end of this interview we'll have to remind listeners that Steve, you were actually there because you are quiet <laughs> during uh, this episode. I mean, we did I, record very late, and I, I know I, I'm really gutted that I missed it. But at the same time, I'm glad I didn't put myself through that level of stress of wanting to talk to someone who I thought was that funny. I'd have nothing to say to the guy. I'd be so no, embarrassed right. you, about you, saying you are not fu- you are not funny. No, I'm that not is, funny. That That's that the is, point. That's really that is, tough for me to deal with because I love it's comedians. It's tough not to not to pr- try to be funny with them as well, isn't it? You have to just sort of let the yeah. You're the comedian, yeah. and, and he was really funny, just naturally, just with us. Yeah, as well. yeah. Me, me and me and him were just sort of like oh, we, were, up, we were just making each other laugh, just riffing with each other, and <laughs> you guys just sort of stayed in your place. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, do you know? What? I really respected that. <laughs> <laughs> just, just quickly, listeners. I was not funny in this uh, episode, <laughs> so fear not. You shall not be laughing when you hear my voice. But yeah, Kieran, I don't, I don't know anything about this damn guy. Why don't you tell me something? Hari Kondabolu facts. <laughs> Hari Kondabolu is a stand-up comedian, actor, filmmaker, and podcast host from New York. Hari has a number of comedy albums available as well as a stand-up special on Netflix. He has been on numerous incredible late-night shows with appearances on Conan, David Letterman, Jimmy Kimmel, wow. and of course, the Paper Crane podcast. Yes, <laughs> the, the, the pinnacle. The, we're, yeah. the, we're a late-night podcast. In 2017, Hari created a documentary called The Problem with Apu. The documentary explores encounters with negative stereotypes, racial microaggressions and slurs against people of Indian and South Asian heritage. His favourite fruit is the mango, so is mine. (laughs) That. And mine! And mine, I love a mango. Don't try and get in on it, Jack. I just want to get in on that. Jack, you're going to enjoy the end of this episode, uh, but you also might be a bit disgusted to hear about Kieran's mum's mango habits. Uh, That comes up right at the end. Um, But it was, yeah, it was so good talking to Hari. Yes, as we mentioned last week, uh, like an annoying friend with a sore finger, we keep going on about the fact that we recorded this episode at half one in the morning (laughs) and we were tired. Uh, but it was a really great chat. We talked uh, at length about um, the problem with Apu and the impact that Hari had on The Simpsons and what that then led to in terms of responses, which was very interesting. 
Uh, we talked about him getting back on stage. He's just become a parent. It's a really good chat. Enjoy the show. How was, uh, yeah, so how was, how was your COVID? Are you back gigging or anything now? I just got on stage for the first time on Sunday. Uh, oh, wow. For the first time since March 10th, 2020, when I last did a gig and it was in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, and oh, it was wow. a great gig. It very easily could not have been because everyone was, <laughs> and not just because it was Cincinnati, but also because everyone was afraid to death. They could see sure. something coming. And the shows leading up to that one, I felt like I was like, I wasn't sure if I was being irresponsible yet, but mm. when, when the NBA season ended, it was it was the day of that show. And I'm like, now I am being irresponsible. Yeah, like, yeah, have you all been touring or have you, have you all no. been on hiatus? Yeah, we stopped, but we we had a tour that if I think if we looked back, we wouldn't have done it, right? It was, the timing was, we were yeah, right no, on we, the way. Yeah, we cancelled it. Yeah, I think by the time we'd cancelled it, we maybe looked bad. It was like the end of March that we cancelled it. It that's should have been. That's not the worst. If you had said like November, I would have been like, that's not <laughs> <No>. <laughs> decision um, but uh we'd uh fortunately though we'd um we'd managed to get out to europe just before but it is yeah. but looking back it does feel insane that we were you know we were in you know luxembourg or wherever but and we knew the word we knew covid the word covid19 right it's insane that we were allowed to right, right. travel across borders willy-nilly but uh yeah so how how was the how was the return gig was it all new material Yes, which was, uh, I mean, I did some old stuff right at the very end. Usually you're supposed mm-hmm. to start with the old stuff and, you know, kind of win them over. And yeah. I chose not to do that. Um, <laughs> and luckily the the first couple of things worked. Otherwise, it, uh, you know, I might not have done a second gig after that sure. one. Um, but yeah, I, I, it was between a pandemic, trunk not being in office anymore, having a kid, the idea of starting with old material just seemed very yeah. dishonest. And even though the audience wouldn't know, I would know. It just yeah. felt like there's too much that's happened. So yeah, you know, I, I talked about a lot of parenthood stuff, which, you know, I'm aware of the fact that most of this parenthood stuff that I'm currently doing will ultimately not make it to any record because I'm sure whatever it is I'm doing right now has been done to death and I don't sure. realize it yet. Sure, so I just sure. need to get through this phase of writing jokes as a first time father until I figure out my voice in it. Yeah. Cause everything yeah. is kind of like, just pretty, like when I was in the hospital, I met this, it's just like, kind of like <laughs> basic. Did you know that their poop is black when it comes out initially and like stuff I'm sure everyone has talked about. Um, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it made the gig more exciting, just not only because I was coming back, but because I really had no idea where things were going. Well, yeah, I feel like sure. uh, I feel like people would still rather see that than a whole set about COVID, because so many comedians are going to be doing a set about COVID. And yes, plus so, it's just the it's just the process of of going through it in your mind, right? That that you'll get to to something special by exercising the fact of, of, you know, observing this part, new part of your life, like. Right, and and part of it is just like with anything, like like when you're a teenager, everything's a new experience and what you, like whatever poetry or songs you wrote when you were like 16 is, it's probably God awful because now you realize like, 
yeah, you, you'll keep getting your heart broken and this will keep <laughs> happening. And this is yeah. not the, the worst. I wrote a poem in high school uh, about a woman I was in love with. And I compared it, it basically was written in the style of Ovid's uh, Pyramus and Thisbe. And looking at it now, it's like, it, it really wasn't that big a deal. Uh, yeah. It didn't didn't deserve the Ovid treatment. I mean, unless, um, she, unless she was a fan, you wasted your time putting that much yeah. into it. <laughs> <laughs> like you wrote that for you. You didn't write right, that no, for that her. But yeah, I mean, I think that I need to go through these first few layers of, mm. um, you know, these these basic observations until I figure out like a lens that's uniquely mine. And, and I know that's definitely the case. And it's also it's tricky because if you haven't, some people have done Zoom shows and mm. stuff um, with comedy over the last year and a half, and I really hate it because it makes me feel like I'm trying to be like, oh, the funny guy on the office you know uh <laughs> zoom call you know what i mean yeah. it's, like, it's, just, it's, yeah. it, it's so not what i signed up for when i agreed to be a stand-up comic like when i decided this is my path it wasn't remote like this so um i didn't do a lot of those those shows but what that means is i have jokes that i've written maybe a year a year and a half ago mm. that i have no idea if it'll work and and that's been part of the heartbreak of it is oh, like yeah. wow i waited a year to tell that joke and it sucked <laughs> like i thought it would oh, for a year i'm like i can't wait to try this and it sucked it was not a good idea yeah but, but i'm sure there's a lot of comics in similar positions in that like they've been waiting to talk about COVID for a year and a half and now all of a sudden they can and they just can't help themselves are you quite brutal with like the stuff that doesn't work that if you feel the joke works but it just isn't successful is it is 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 that it it sucks and then it's out no no not generally that it, i will keep things in for way too long yeah. <laughs> for for years and sometimes eventually i find the punchline to it and and you have to wonder was two years of an audience suffering through that joke worth <laughs> finally finding a punchline uh probably probably not um and the other part of it is um you know um you never know which like you you don't actually like you try it once and you give up it, it might have been because the audience wasn't the right audience or the joke you put before it wasn't the right joke or mm the setup didn't give them enough context or there's something in the news that makes this joke feel uncomfortable because something happened that somehow relates to it. And right. so you kind of have to play it up. But after you try every possible scenario over the course of two years, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's dead. It's not, it, there's nothing, it was never alive. But then similarly, um, like your, your, so one of my favorite bits and a bit you've used on a few of your records is uh, the devil's advocate. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So if if a joke you love sticks, then you just stick with that for more than one tour. You just keep going. And go. When do you, you stop know, using a a joke or a bit? That that bit I only brought back because I wanted to do it on the Netflix special, and I'd written two new parts of it. Right. Yeah. Like anything that's, with the exception of that health insurance joke about, <laughs> which was based on Jonathan Swift and eating rich people. <laughs> uh, instead of eating babies, I'm like eating rich people in, in the bit. I did that one on my Netflix special, even though I've done it on an album out of spite. 
um, <laughs> just to have the largest audience possible hear that sentiment. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the other bits that I repeated, they have a new element or a second half I never got to do on the record or there's, there's a strategic reason for it. Um, which I'm, as, as a, someone who creates art, there's a, a little bit of guilt, like for mm. people who know the work, like why did he do that joke twice? But I also am aware of like, I would never repeat a joke on an album twice mm -hmm. or on like a special, like if I had multiple specials, like I wouldn't like repeat a joke on that from one special to another special, but between the forms, I'm somewhat willing to budge you know, between but, audio and video. Oh, yes. I don't know if that's reasonable. I think that's but... a loophole. I think that's an agreeable. <laughs> I'm using it. <laughs> it seems like there's like an American English divide. Like it seems like. Absolutely. Or, or like British, I should say. They just kind of, you know, work towards Edinburgh and then everything's out mm. and then start from fresh. Whereas it's America's so more in, in cycles, you know. It, it, it's it the is, most, isn't it? It's incredibly wasteful. And I've gotten so frustrated with friends who do these Edinburgh shows and whether the show is brilliant or it's not, I'm aggravated because if it's brilliant, I'm like, why are you not recording this? So more yes. than the audience in front of you or the audience you'll tour with will see it. Cause that means it only lives for so long and never again. And some of the hours I've seen, I'm like, this is an incredible hour. And I know mm -hmm. so many American hours that are weaker than this and they put it out anyway. And I think part of that is maybe like just, there's something about being an American comic that also is very like aware of like marketing and <laughs> uh, how, how to, you know, how to get your record played. And like, like there, there is a, the commerce becomes very quickly a part of it. And also I think it's a, it's a, it's a bigger country. So you, you, you play more places and the mm. people aren't going to hear the, you know, I think you you have a limited number of cities to play, let's say in the UK, if you're a touring comic in the UK and it's like, you got to you got to turn the material over a lot faster, um, so that bothers me. And when it's a, not a great hour, I get frustrated. I'm like, this had the seeds of a great hour. You mm -hmm. rushed it into Edinburgh, and you've given up on it, as opposed to developing it for another year or two and then recording it and making it something. So I understand this kind of and part of me who like views stand up as an art form, loves it, and it feels like it's so pure. What happens in Edinburgh? But the part of me that is someone who's trying to uh, survive as a working artist thinks it's stupid. It is the <laughs> dumbest thing you can do. You have this piece of art and you're throwing it away. You're not yeah. developing it. And sometimes like, you know, you, you tell you have this hour and it only makes sense years later when you can actually write to it because you have more experiences mm. to write to, especially if it's a conceptual thing. So yeah, there definitely is a, a, an American and, and, British divide on that. And I'm, I'm, I don't, I like the turnover that UK comics have. I, I, I mm. love that, but I just hate the fact that it, it just goes into the ether. Like it just disappears. I hate that. And that's another thing as well. Like it's only in recent years that, that, um, I can't remember what it's called, but there's like a new comedy network that's just like, it's like a Netflix for UK comics. Mm. Um, but before then, like, if, like really good shows by like people like Nick Helm were just lost oh, and they were, they were brilliant oh my god yeah there's his show uh the first one i saw of his called keep hold of the gold you can only get an audio version of it and it doesn't work but seeing it live was one of the you know he got he gets he got the entire audience on stage it was incredible I mean, my favorite comedian is Stuart lee 
and mm. seeing his work, like the idea that like, you know, he has all this stuff that has never been recorded, right? You know, mm. before that that first uh, special um, stand-up, was it 90s comedian or stand-up comedian? But like, yeah. It, it, you know, the idea, I wouldn't have discovered him and I wouldn't have been influenced by him and I wouldn't have shared his work with a billion people. And yeah. like, like uh, to me, it's like, he's opened up this new realm in my thinking and a lot of other mm. comics. And the idea that that would not happen because yeah. no one recorded it. Like I just, it's funny because, you know, I, I became a fan of his work when I was living in London. This is probably 2007, 2008. Oh, wow. and, and I became just obsessed and almost every interview since then, especially when people ask me about like influences, he gets referenced. I reference his work. I reference like, you know, my, the joy I have from deconstructing stand up, like really, you know, like I, I always had that interest, but once you see somebody do it as a master, mm. it's like, oh, these, these instincts I had that I was like, um, you know, suppressing because it doesn't really fit a club. All of a sudden I'm like, oh, you can do this. And the way he does it is just so incredible. And uh, it's gotten to the point where he is aware I reference him constantly. Um, <laughs> he, every now and then we exchange an email and he's like, thank you again for your, and it's like five, in five different places. And he has, <laughs> and, and clearly I'm incredibly influenced. And, and on his, you know, on his webpage, he has a plagiarism corner, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Right, and where he like calls out people that, he claims plagiarism and, and it's absurd like things that, like yeah. like him in a chair like standing next to a chair and he's and he's claiming like clint eastwood stole his <laughs> bit from <laughs> republican <laughs> national convention and like so he does that and then i checked it recently and i was on it and i was accused of stealing everything it just says <laughs> Stuart lee everything hurricane bull everything and i it felt really good <laughs> I, mean, I was gonna say like so when you see his name do you get excited like it, he mentions you instantly you're just like i've done it the guy I have, that i love feels, knows who i am it feels re i mean i'm you know it's funny because whenever we've had a chance to chat like uh it's i, I it's very rare that i become like a fanboy 38 and you know <laughs> i've had enough life experiences and i've, I've done stuff like i've gotten a tour with like Chris Rock and my heroes wow. and stuff like that. So it's it's rare that I still have that kind of, you know, mm. he's like the only person. And it's weird because over here, nobody knows who he is. And yet he's sure. the person I get most nervous to chat with. And <laughs> wow, it's very, especially like with, with friends who I've taken to see shows in, in London and they don't know who he is until after. And they're like, I, I don't oh get God. it because I don't know who the hell this guy is, but you're like nervous to say hello. And you know, <laughs> no, he, I think he's brilliant. What do, what do you think about his um, when he targets other comedians in his act? You know, I don't mind it because it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's also UK comics. So there's a degree of like separation where you sure. can view them as abstract ideas and not full human beings until you meet them. Do you know what I mean? Like Russell Brand is an abstract idea. Do you sure. know what I mean? Like yeah. as opposed to a human being that hurt the, you know, heard this, you know? Um, you know, I, I don't love it. I only, mm. you know, it's not to say it's not funny because it's incredibly mm. funny, but I, it's that weird thing of, 
unless the person is a news story, is it fair to make them one? And sure. that's kind of like with when it's like when it is like Russell Howard or Russell Brand, I think it's different mm. because they are people who are in a position of, of some power and prestige. And that line of you can't make as a comedian, you shouldn't make fun of other comedians. I think that really is about power more than anything else. Like, sure. And in and, and that situation, yeah, you know, but if you're going after like a smaller comic or someone who's your peer, that's, you know, that, that's, uh, you know, that, yeah. it, it's just, you know what that struggle is like. And it's not like uh, the other person's in a place where, you know, their, their name holds enough weight where you're insulting them is not a big mm, deal. Yeah. You know, Russell Brand, you could, you know, you know, Russell Howard. Yeah. Can, you might be upset because oh, I, I love Stuart. Lee. I can't believe you said that. But at the end of the day, it's you think Ricky Gervais cares? Like it's not going <laughs> to exactly. be, yeah. you know, it's not going to be an issue. So that's kind of how I'm with it. I'd I'd never had an issue with it until, and it took me a long time to realize that he'd actually done a whole routine about Mark Watson, because he never mentions Mark Watson in the routine. But it's about the pear cider advert, because which as a, oh, an advert yeah, that yeah, yeah. Mark Watson did, and I didn't, and I felt like that was a bit punching down because you know he's he's a comedian trying so it's almost like the 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 ad because to me it's almost like the advert alone seems like fair game because it's mm. it's it's a commercial like it, it's no exactly it's, but the specific referencing of the comic feels a little uncomfortable because it's yeah I, I i i've heard the name mark watson but like i don't know anything he's actually ever done and i don't know what right, it's like okay. over there but is he somebody of great note or no not really he's like people comedy fans will know him he does like uh i think he's probably most famous for doing like 24 hour gigs at edinburgh and stuff like that he does them for charity but he is great he's like in with uh he does a show with um tim key and alex horn at the moment on youtube which is quite funny well what show is this uh it's called no more jockeys it started in lockdown it's it's worth your time i I love alex horn like he's alex does taskmaster right yes yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. that didn't really take off in america did it It they tried it with reggie (laughs) it did not work work. it's funny man like a lot of like uk like shows that people have taken especially if they're game shows or panel shows have not i don't understand why the panel Mm. show isn't a bigger deal here it's such a like straightforward format it's full mm. of jokes like it's for comics it's great because it's a tv appearance without having to prepare a bunch of material you're you're just getting to be funny with your friends i yeah. don't know why it's not taken maybe off it's here. because it's your strange. your genuine game shows are like a bigger deal oh the prizes are bigger everything's a lot more serious yeah that is actually the most thoughtful way of looking at it. i never thought about it. you're right like it's almost tongue. It's tongue in cheek yeah. when, when it's done in yeah. the UK, but here it's like, like people actually win hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. and yeah, it changes yeah. their lives. With, yeah. with us, with the BBC, it was that was part of the entertainment. Is that the the prizes on like real, not not like panel shows, but a, a genuine yeah. quiz show. The prizes are always hilariously cheap. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. You know that's part of it. <laughs> but... The perfect example of how bad, like, so you've got RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah. In America, they like, I think the the winner gets, I don't know, like two hundred thousand dollars or something. Yeah. In the UK Drag Race, they get the opportunity to go to Hollywood and film something for a week that's produced by RuPaul. That's the big <laughs> prize. Wow. Yeah. 
basically, Give me they have the to money. sign a contract to work for RuPaul. So that if you don't win, you've got a much better chance of actually cashing in. And, and people your still do it. Yeah. Oh, it's huge over here. Yeah. But hey, let's let's go back to you uh, in a more sort of formal interview. Uh, what? Like, so actually, let's go back to material. When when did you first have? Uh, a good enough bit of material that you thought, okay, I'm going to put, I'm going to go on stage now. Huh. That, that assumes pride and (laughs) self-respect. What was the first Uh, bit of material you were proud of? (laughs) I mean, the first bit of material I was proud of on stage probably didn't happen for like three years. And I've been saying all sorts of garbage for three years. Um, but the first few years, I mean, the stuff I was doing was just awful, like very sure. either basic observational stuff, very derivative of other comics and derivative mm. is being generous. Like <laughs> It was like Chris Rock jokes, but with the word Indian in them, like it's not like it wasn't particularly nuanced or anything, you yeah. know, and then the other type of joke was. Uh, you know, very stereotypical Indian accents. Because at that point, it's like, you, you know, if you, if Apu's on The Simpsons and you know that's making people laugh, you're like, well, I'm a real person and can do that voice, right? So then sure. that's, you know, easy. And, and for a comic, I was like 17 when I started. Like, wow, you just want to, you just want to make people laugh. Every comic wants to start by making people laugh. I'm not thinking about, you know, like I've had comics come up to me and say, you know, I care about X, Y, Z, and I want to talk about them. And I'm wondering if, if standup is the, is the way I can get my messages through. And I'm like, you should not do standup. That sounds like <laughs> nothing you've said is funny. And that is not the reason to get into this art form. Like you, if, if you're, if you have a, it's like saying that I'm going to learn to play the guitar so I can change the word with my lyrics. And it's like, how about you just become a great musician? So people will want to listen and you can actually say yeah. what you want to say because people actually like what you do. I feel like, you know, the first goal should be to, you know, to master the form. Um, sure. And I think I feel like not to say I've mastered it, but I certainly felt after three or four years, I felt comfortable enough that I knew how to get a laugh where mm-hmm. I could go into places that were less comfortable or places, you know, and also I was 17 when it started, like by the, by the time, like 9-11 had happened, like my view of America, the world had changed dramatically. Mm. I'm much more critical. I'm going on stage doing accents thinking, what am I talking about? Like, I'm actually like thinking about what I'm talking about, which before I'd never thought about impact. You just wanted anyone, you wanted people to laugh, you wanted someone to listen to you. So, I mean, hell in high school, if I could have played the guitar, I never would have done comedy. Like <laughs> this, this was not some noble pursuit. I wanted girls to like me and I figured, well, I can't play an instrument. I make people laugh. Let's do that. You know, I can, so, uh, I can guarantee you now girls still don't like you. If you play a uh, play the guitar, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do. <laughs> but man, 17 is, is young. What drove you to get on the stage and and hmm. also like the mechanics of it because isn't it like uh, you have to be over 21 to get into well places i mean there? i i so i was in high school at the time and i'd been writing for a year and what i you know i just set up a comedy night in my high school night i did it there because it was right you know that's the safest place you can do it sure and, it's at school. I did 45 minutes, which is shocking because I had nothing to say. <laughs> Your first show. Nothing to minutes. say. Nothing that, to say. 
I, yeah. I was going to say, look, actually, your first five minutes, but oh, no, you no, went no, in no. straight your with 45. Your first 45 minutes. My, the thing I discovered was that my ego developed well before my material. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was all, my ego was in place. I can handle 45. I have stage presence. Um, and then I went to college and uh, like during the four years of university, I, did, I was the only one doing stand up. And right. so I would get crowds to come and that helped a lot because it's like, I had these audiences. I went to college in Maine. It's like kind of, you know, it's, it's, it was, I would say somewhere, yeah, somewhere isolated, you know, like it, it wasn't, a, it wasn't, I wasn't in a big city. So like I was the only show. And so right. you know, I had an audience to play for and I was writing tons of stuff and I was starting to develop my voice a little bit. Um, and then I'd go home to New York on breaks and I would um, do open mics. Um, okay not necessarily at places that carded obviously because I, I wouldn't have been allowed in but i would do it at like you know uh poetry slams or uh open mic nights that would have poetry and stand up and music which was right terrible because it was That's, like it doesn't doesn't you, work you would follow it was like okay you'd follow a weird exper experimental theater piece some guy who just like probably put his kids to bed and wanted to play Born to Run and then run <laughs> out back. Do you know what I mean? And then I'm going up babbling. So it's just, but, but you know, I, I was going up there. I did a few clubs that had nights where they would let under 21 people in to just do open mics and stuff. And it was incredibly hard. And, and I never thought I could make it a career because in addition to being brown in the US at that time, like, cause I think y'all had mm. your wave in the nineties with like goodness gracious me and uh, yeah. Kumars and all that stuff. And we didn't, we didn't have that. There was no, like at least some reference point. And plus like the, obviously like the, the minority of note in the U S is, is like black folks and, mm. and Latinos and it's, it's increasing, but like, you know, that, that was where most of the like non white art was being created and, and, where, where you know stuff about race was being discussed but a, a south asian at that time like you know there wasn't anybody so i didn't think it was going to be feasible to begin with to do as a career plus the audiences if i wanted to talk about stuff that i really cared about wouldn't understand because the just not enough of us to understand and um it, new york was so hard i'm like i don't want to pay ten dollars because they because it they knew that they Everybody wanted to do stand up in New York. So they would charge you for five minutes of stage time. They'd force you, like, if you bring 10 friends, we'll give you five minutes. Like, right. it, it was a scam for comedy venues to make money by getting people with their hopes and dreams to basically lose all their friends over time. Like, it's essentially. <laughs> That's just like a band in London, though. Like, when we yeah. first They make you all out, do that too? Yeah, they're like, you have to buy five pounds a ticket. Pay to play. Yeah, pay to play. Yeah. We call, yeah. You buy, or you buy, you buy your own set of tickets, and you have to sell them to get people to come in. Yeah, and if you don't, and sell if you, them. and the ones you don't sell, you have to pay for. Oh, that's awful. However, for comedians here, I think it's I don't know what it is like now because I think it's you know there's more and more comedians coming through. Uh, but yeah, there was like it was only through listening to American podcasts that I learned about things like barking and stuff like oh, that. Is, yeah, did yeah. you have to go through that? I didn't. Like, that was part of the reason I I didn't think I was going to do stand up like mm. it, it felt like there was enough undignified ways to it just feels like okay so I'm dragging all my friends I'm spending money just to do this thing I really want to do and now you you want me to 
spend hours trying to get people into the club to give me five mm. minutes to play for them after they've seen me begging them to go into the club. Like that's just, yeah. it's not, look, I'm, I'm not interested. I mean, I started doing standup in a professional sense when I moved to Seattle, because I moved to Seattle after I finished university. And it was like, there was a small scene there. No one's barking. You're not paying for stage time. It's a small scene. No one's really watching. No industry people are really watching. And so, you know, I, I was, I was good enough where I could get a lot of stage time and people wanted me on their shows. In New York, right. I would be one of many, but in Seattle, like I was like, oh, this guy just showed up. I've never seen him and he knows how to do standup. And he's, and he's so decent is that what, at it. Is that what prompted you to move to Seattle instead of no, going back to I New moved, York? I moved to Seattle to be an immigrant rights organizer. So I had a job as working with immigrants and refugees and, and I planned to make that my career. I mean, I went to London because that was 2005, I went to London uh, for 07, 08, because I got a master's in human rights from LSE. And so I still didn't trust standup, like it just didn't seem real. And I kept getting TV spots and opportunities. And I'm like, okay, this is clearly becoming something and not, I'm like, you know, when I first made it onto TV, I, part of me was like, is it just the novelty of, of right. me, you know, or is it because <laughs> You know, Aziz yeah. made it and Russell Peters is, is big in other parts of the world. So let's put some money in another one and see if that'll get us anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it took a while to actually see that, oh, what I'm saying, I guess, does resonate. And it's not just for audiences in Seattle. I could go to other places and make them laugh, too. So, you know, I, Seattle, you know, that was it was it was kind of a, a lucky um, stand up was kind of like this lucky afterthought. Like I moved there for a very specific wow. thing and found the scene and, you know, didn't master the craft, but I certainly, by the end of my two years there, it felt like I'd done a master's on standup because I was able to <laughs> headline. I was able to feature. I knew how to do 30 minutes. I knew how to do an hour. I knew how to do 15 minutes. I knew how to, to change pace, like stuff in college. I was doing a little bit, but now all of a sudden with material, like I cared for in some way. And, I learned to, you know, work, working on like trying to be more physical, using the space, like all this stuff that if you're doing comedy once a month, you're not going to learn. But if you're doing it every night, you will. So, you know, it, it, it wasn't the goal of Seattle, but it's what it turned into. It's interesting that progression that you're kind of laying out uh, to getting to the point where you can talk about your interests, your opinions. That, yeah. that that kind of you started out by just honing the ability to make people laugh i kind of assumed that you would just have immediately gone in just talking about you know what you feel and what you think no i mean i i, I think i had to figure out what i felt and what i thought like I, at 17 like i wasn't particularly political, thoughtful about the world. I, I don't, you know, I loved comedy. I don't think I ever thought of art. I mean, I was aware that art had impact because I could see how it had impact in, in my life, but making the connection of the things I said would influence other people or the things I was hearing were influencing me. I don't think I made that connection for, for a few more years. Um, which is, it's strange to think about now, but when you're a kid, everything is new. You're not thinking yeah. about the longer term, like what what is this teaching me and what what are other people learning from it? You're just like, this is funny and that's that. And so, you know, I wasn't in any place to, you know, I didn't, I didn't, 
I didn't have anything to talk about. I think the weird thing is most comics talk about their their life and their personal experiences when they start because that's the first thing that they get to. The thing that I got to first, like after that period of just saying god awful things and being kind of racist, <laughs> was um, after 9-11, you know, I had something to talk about with substance and how I felt and what was going on in the world. And so I felt most comfortable talking about bigger things first. I felt until recently really uncomfortable talking about me. If that makes any sense. Like yeah. I, I like people would figure out who I was through my points of view, but anything that could make me vulnerable as an individual, I, I always hid. Um, which is funny because I think a lot of other comics, they go the other way. Like they go with the stuff that is more vulnerable and that that's clear and that's about them. And then they might drift into other places that they're less, you know, whether it's politics or different styles of comedy, like they'll start to see what else they can do. And it was opposite for me. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, that's that was for a, a long while the joke over here. It was, uh, you know, another Edinburgh show about someone's dead dad. It was like yeah. that was basically, <laughs> it was always. Stuart Lee had a, had a thing like that where he talked about, like, he was, he was, it was tongue in cheek, I think. You never know. But like he had said <laughs> something of just about uh, another show about somebody dead. People come to comedy not to be sad. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, speaking of having an impact. You obviously had a huge impact on the biggest TV show of all time mm. uh, with your documentary a few years ago. How did um, well, how did the process start for making uh, The Problem with the Poo? Um, I was on a show called Politic... Oh, no, that's, that's the name of my podcast. I was on a show called Totally Biased. I confuse them just because it's with a comic so, yeah. named W. Kamau Bell and, and, and Kamau is who I do the podcast with too, but... Totally Biased was Kamal's first TV show. And uh, really, like, it's one of those shows where while we were making it that first season, I knew, one, the show won't be a around for very long. It was clear to me we would get canceled sooner than later just because, I like, the stuff we were talking about, like, we, I already knew, like, we're, this is a small audience that gets it. We're about two or three or four years ahead of where where everyone else is. Like, wow. so we were talking about whether it was transgender issues or police brutality or stuff that's part of like mainstream comedy here now. Sure. So what, what, what year you, would this have been? This was uh, 2012. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. 2012, 2013, 2014, that period. So it was really like, we, we it, I think that uh, it influenced a lot of young comics. I know that because they tell me um, mm. you know, uh, people I respect, like Bowen Bo Yang, who's a comic uh, out here, was on Saturday Night Live, and I think he's just incredible. And he mm. he had said something about how he was a fan of mine, and and I'm like, you don't need to say that because I'm older. Like you don't. Like, you could also <laughs> you can also just say this is a guy that's been around and he's old. But he had seen, <laughs> you know, like he had seen Totally Biased, and a lot of other folks, I guess, had too, and it meant something to a lot of people because all of a sudden you're seeing so many different people of color and, and queer folks and trans folks sharing their stories. You know, it wasn't people talking about them. They were talking for themselves and allowed to be angry and allowed to be funny and allowed to have this space. And um, also to be legitimized by the show being 
executive produced by Chris Rock was a big deal. And on mm. FX, which, you know, is a network that even you know, still now, but even back then has a sterling reputation. And so, you know, that show allowed a lot of us to, to share things. And I'd written this piece about Mindy Kaling getting a show. This is when the Mindy Project came out. Yeah. And how groundbreaking that is considering how far we had come. And so I did this whole bit about you know, the history of South Asian or more specifically Indian representation in the US. And I went over Apu and a bunch of other figures, but it was the Apu part that people really like clung to. And I think it's because no one had ever said anything publicly about that, right. um, which at the time felt very strange. Even when I was doing the bit, you know, that, that piece, it felt very cheesy to me just because really? like- Like an obvious bit, like, like an obvious bit. Used to, yeah, it think, felt yeah. obvious. It, because like, you know, I'd made a short film about this stuff like five years previous, six years previous. I've been talking about this stuff, making jokes about this stupid character since I was a kid. And then you, you know, I was telling Kamal this and he's like, it's, it's cheesy to you and your community. Nobody thinks about this. Mm. No one's questioned this. This is ripe. And, and that's the thing that, you know, I've realized more and more that, you know, for, for marginalized communities, our old stuff is your new stuff. And that's something mm -hmm. I, you know, I hadn't really thought about, like all this stuff that we had talked about, you know, is, is this fresh ground to kind of, uh, to plant things. I don't know where that analogy was going. I went with planting, but... so digging, <laughs> yeah. but, but so I did that piece and, and, and it did that. And a few years later, I was thinking about what I wanted to work on next. And the fact that that piece resonated made me think more and more well let's see what i i could do if i did a little deeper if i actually started to ask questions and did interviews and knowing especially when that thing came out the number of other south asians that like reached out to me because i did that piece wow. you know like I remember aziz like retweeted it when that thing was out and he sent me a message about how like no one's ever done that and it was really cool and it's like the fact that that my peers were reacting that way mm gave me a sense of, okay, this is a, a bigger thing. And chances are I would get a lot of people that I knew that were notable to talk about it too. So I wouldn't be this one guy talking about this thing. But isn't and it so... fucking crazy how it took until 2017 yeah, it's for very... it to be not only pointed out, but then the rest of the Indian community going, oh, thank you for saying that. It wasn't oh. everybody. That's That's one of the things I discovered there was also the um the um have a sense of humor you're embarrassing all of us i always thought Apu wow. was a great character because he was a, a strong convenience store owner and you know it was an immigrant who made it and i'm like that's not why people are yeah. laughing yeah. no one's like my god that's hilarious how strong he is as an immigrant first yeah. generation no it's the accent like who are we fooling it's it's the the cheesy jokes and and really the even when i was making the film it, it felt old to me i knew it wasn't to everyone else but to me it, it felt like like i was saying an old project that i was making as a 101 for you know a, a broad audience um yeah you know, I, I watched the film i rewatched it recently and and you know of course anybody who makes art is like i wish i did this or i wish i did that but you know, there's certainly a lot of decisions I made because it was on a cable television network in the US and I had to account for commercial breaks and they wanted so. something that was bright and shiny and popped, you know, and that's <laughs> what the doc is. It's very much Ooh. like, like, hello yeah. versus like, 
you know, what I wanted, which was, I didn't even want myself to really be a character in the thing. I wanted to do like just a series of interviews cut together to tell a story, which mm. True TV was like, no, we have a graphics department. Things are going to look shiny. Uh, so, yeah, so that's, you know, we made that film and I knew it was going to make some noise just because nobody had ever really challenged The Simpsons before. Mm. But I didn't think it would go as long as it did, you know, and I didn't think I'd get death threats and I didn't think that, you know, uh, so many people would be angry. And I, I, I mean, part of it mm. was like, even when I made the film, I'm like, I don't expect anything to happen, nor do I really care if anything happens because the show's been around forever and there's already been progress from there. This is kind of a recounting of our experience and like the story of a, of a community that was ignored and also the role that media plays, especially mm -hmm. when you're underrepresented. That's really what the film's about. Um, but I guess when people don't see the film, it, you can hate it more easily. But I watched yeah. it recent. I watched it again recently. And everything still resonates in a in a in a in a negative way, in the sense of like, I still don't feel like it's changed. I yeah. still mm. feel like that. Well, I I, do, I don't think things have if you, if if we're talking about how things have gotten better in in media in general or the world in general, I'm not going to make the case that it has because, uh, you know. Every, we all acknowledge everything's terrible. You know, this is <laughs> last throes of a dying empire that is Earth. Um, no, let me rephrase it. That is humankind. Um, yes. But Earth, Earth will be fine. They've been waiting to get rid of us. Mm. Um, but I think, I but I do think there's progress, at least in terms of represent, representation. Like, no, to me, yes. there's... Yeah. There's just way, I mean, I'm just shocked by the amount of, like, uh, that show Sex Education, like, I'm obsessed with that show. I just saw the third season. I'm like, they're doing, like, like obviously the, the sex is kind of the main subject, but it's also a conduit to all these different types of relationships and, and representations, and there's so much thought put in. I, I'm, like, shocked by it. Or when I see Rami which is on Hulu. And I'm like, this is a show that never would have existed before now. Like you're talking about like young Muslim dude that's dealing with the fact that he has lots of sex and how does he deal with that while also not drinking and figuring out how to be a good Muslim, how to be a good person in, in the world. Like that's incredible. Like then the, the shows that are coming out are like, like so groundbreaking. And even yeah. when I made the documentary, it's not like all this stuff was out, but you could sense something was was bubbling. So, you know, when the thing came out, it was really more of a, this is where we were and this is where we're, we're going. But, you know, what I don't think I realized, which is foolish of me, is you put something out there um, with the hopes of getting a real discussion, right? And that mm. people would watch something and and actually have a fair discussion and it's as if i had forgotten how the internet worked <laughs> i had forgotten that it has nothing to do there is no, there are no good faith arguments right there is no like this is i've seen the thing and this is what i think it's and most of it is like this is the new story of the week that is an example of political correctness gone wild or of how everything's being destroyed and we can't enjoy anything anymore and everybody cries racism. It's like my film and the story of the film got plugged in mm. into that that slot for some period of time. 
as opposed to let's watch it and talk about it. It was like, this is everything that's wrong with the world. Making it more complicated again was you have a bunch of people sending me death threats in the US. Then you have a bunch of people sending me death threats around the world who didn't have access to the film until recently. Like most places still don't have access to the film. So I'm getting death threats from people who hadn't even seen it. The worst being the stuff from Central and South America, which I was stunned by. Like, first of all, the reach of The Simpsons is is incredible. But also it's like, you know, I don't even know how they hear a poo. Is it with an accent? What does that accent mean to to people watching it? Like, is there an accent at all? Is it subtitled? Like I have even no context. And to them, it's some guy in some place killing a show that they like. And apparently in other countries, people still actively watch The Simpsons, which is more shocking. You know, I'm like, wow, this is still a thing you watch every week. Uh, this is you're still emotionally invested in this show. And you're an adult like that's amazing to me um, after all these years. So it, it was weird getting death threats in Spanish. It was weird getting death threats in Portuguese once it hit Brazil. It was weird to like have all these people angry at me about something they hadn't seen or necessarily understood. Mm. And none of that was, you know, what I expected. See, I'd never taken that out. into, co- I'd never taken that into any thought because obviously, so there's, I think within the documentary, you show a, a French car advert with, with uh, Homer in it. Yeah. And yeah. he's doing his voice in a French accent. So is it with, it, with speaking French? So are, is there an Indian guy or a white guy in every country doing Apu's voice <laughs> oh, with, within their language. Or is it just everyone has a different voice, but without a, an accent? You know what I mean? Maybe there's no Ooh. reference point for that accent. Yeah. So everyone just That's has, you know, if you're, you know, Ar- if, if it's in Argentina, everyone has an Argentinian Spanish accent that's consistent, mm. but different because they're different people. Like, I, I mean, that's the weird thing. Like, I have no idea how people are interpreting the character and mm. there's it's not like there's a the same history of of race and representation that there is in this country i think any place that has a diverse population even if it's just barely diverse is going to have those those mm. bumps yeah and that like you know by bumps i mean blatant racism and kind of the pushback from said blatant racism but like in in the u.s like it's so i mean this country was built on it right so like that's always yeah. been part of the conversation so yeah it was weird how did you feel about the pushback from like uh well one the simpsons themselves but uh also i i don't know if you would have this would have got back to you but i was i went to uh, a screening of um monty python's the life of brian a couple of years ago and it was followed by a q and a with uh, michael palin and terry gilliam and i don't know when the last time you watched life of brian was but it's been a long time there, uh, well, there's there's sequences in it that haven't aged well, uh, and they were asked about it. And at one point, Terry Gilliam actually shouted, "Free Apo!" Oh, jeez! You, you'll be happy to know that it was met with a, an awkward mumbling from the audience. But, I, mean, uh, I mean, even John Cleese said something recently, and I, I admire. It's just like, oh, not you, but <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, it's it's like. I mean, the one thing I will say is I had uh, dinner with Terry Jones before he died. And wow. uh, I mean, of course, before he died, after would have been a more interesting <laughs> that story. Um, really bad. <laughs> but it was so I don't I'm, I'm glad I don't know how he felt about it because um, mm-hmm. it, it was lovely. Um, yeah, I, should I mean, say also Michael Palin was very measured 
and uh, seemingly a bit regretful about uh, you know them not being white for the entire film. That's good. So yeah, so I, th- I think I think Palin's good. It was uh, it was Gilliam trying to get a rally cry going and no one responded. <laughs> the th- I mean the thing that's most frustrating is again nothing is done in good faith. Had they seen the thing, they know like, what they were talking about. Did they hear the arguments or was it just either it doesn't matter what other people have to mm. say about their feelings, I don't care, or take feelings out of it. Like the logic, like, I don't care about logic. We're in control. Mm. This is what we want. Or is it just laziness? Is it just straight up? I'm just going to jump on. And I we all do it about different mm. things, but I'm just going to jump on this bandwagon without even knowing what it is that I'm, what I'm, that I'm talking about without having done even a, a bit of research. So, you know, and, and it's strange because like part of me is like, it's, it's just a documentary about a cartoon character. You know what I mean? But yeah. it's and then the this, other part of it's this cancel culture they're getting upset about. Right. And yeah. then that's, and you know, so on one hand I can see it like, cause part of me is like, man, this fucking thing, like my Netflix special came out like that December and people were still talking about the fucking project uh. I did in April. Like, <laughs> yeah. Or whatever, or like came out in June and, and, and the thing that I released in November, whenever the dates were, but it was like, it'd been six to eight months. And it's like, mm. this is not what I do. The Netflix special sure. is what I do. Like, this is the art I make. This thing was like, you know, me wanting to discuss a topic that was kind of personal and I thought would be interesting, but it wasn't mm. like, you know, but and, I mean- And the thing is your, I, your special kind of deals with bigger issues which the sort yeah. of people that are going to complain about the apu thing would surely take a larger issue with <laughs> right right, yeah. right. but yeah, yeah. i mean honestly it, it, th- there's a lot of people that uh hated that apu docu like hated the idea of the documentary not that they've seen it who i think would have loved the special mm. yeah. because the issue was like it, it, the thing is like if you were if you're a Simpsons fan or somebody who um, doesn't like quote unquote cancel culture, that doesn't mean you're not politically liberal on everything else. It means that you don't like how society is changing quickly and you don't understand how it's changing and you're not interested and you're afraid of it, which to some degree I understand as someone who's 38, like a lot <laughs> has changed since I was mm. 18, since I was 10, like, like the amount of technology, TikTok scares the hell out of me. Like I get it. Oh, God, it is terrifying. You and me terrifying. both. You and me both, buddy. <laughs> I, I, t- I tell you what, I do think there is something about maybe like because it's certainly a lot. I think a lot of the pushback comes from people that didn't watch the documentary. But one thing I must say, so we can move on from this subject you've spoken about for years. Thank uh, you. I would absolutely <laughs> love to see you and Whoopi Goldberg sitting at a table and oh, talking. Man. I would watch ten series of that. <laughs> it was. So it was just one. She's cool, yes. and we we don't get a lot of her in the UK. But you t- you two like it's just two comedians having a lovely chat, and yes. I would just a new subject every week, <laughs> one hour, ten episodes per season, ten seasons over ten years. I I would do it. I have a feeling Whoopi wouldn't. Um, <laughs> I feel like uh, <laughs> there. I know Whoopi wouldn't, and I say that because <laughs> I. So I was on the View to promote the, the documentary, and right. and I was hanging out with Whoopi, and she was incredibly nice, and just everything you'd think she would be. And a production assistant or somebody came by 
and was talking about some toys that Disney had sent, like maybe like Mickey Mouse ears or something. Like everybody got them and everything. And Whoopi was like clearly feigning interest, you know? And then after the assistant left, she looked at me and said something to the effect of, I need the money. Like the money's really good. <laughs> and it was oh, like, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. It was, the, it was so clear that like, you know, cause this is a person, I mean, she's won all the major awards. She's yeah. a groundbreaking actress. She's a groundbreaking comedian. Yeah. Why is she hosting a talk show? Which uh, she is made into something that actually has some political weight and is oh, actually really? very thoughtful and informative, but it's still at its core, you know, morning talk show. I remember her saying that and thinking like, everybody has to work, you know? Wow. You, you, you don't get to, regardless of how, uh, what your peak was or or the influence you've had at a certain point, you have to choose with, you know, from what is given to you. And this is there and it's a, it's a great gig in terms of you get to go home at a reasonable hour every day, <laughs> yeah, you pay sure. well. And because you're Whoopi, I'd imagine like everyone w loves you. Like yeah. when I met her, I was just like, this is one of the coolest people I could, possibly meet in my life she seems like national treasure status over there yeah and i think growing like more so i think as really? people are getting older yeah because you start to think about i mean because she between like she was kind of like positioned maybe unfairly kind of as the female eddie murphy in the 80s where she was doing action films and yeah. comedies and 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 some were really successful some less so but certainly like she had like that heyday and in addition to being in the color purple and ghost mm. and these incredibly dramatic films and ghost, she's like comedy relief, but she's also incredibly thoughtful in the performance and mm. won an Academy award for it. And plus then you have all the sister act stuff, right? So you have this yeah. person who's had like this incredible live performance career, like some kind of high art and these incredible films, you know, uh, that have won awards and then mainstream like family films and now she's, you know, hosting a show that, you know, for for all you can say, it's it's a big show and it's every single day and it's in the morning. So like at this point, people, so many people have grown up with her in some capacity, and yeah. it, she's, you know, a figure. Like regardless of if you see the other part of experience, like you know, her work, she's a figure. She's a very important figure. I think for for UK context, if it, if people don't know. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg does The View in America. I think the the like that would be in the UK if say Emma Thompson did Loose Women over here loose probably, women. right? I knew you were going to say Loose Women. Like great Oscar winning <laughs> actor started in comedy is on a, a daytime talk yeah, show. That's th that fine. reference I feel is perfect and it hurt when you said it. <laughs> <laughs> Just the unfairness of it of both imagining Emma Thompson in that position and <laughs> The fact that Whoopi Goldberg is in it currently, like that is, yeah. <laughs> and look, again, that show really has gotten interesting because she's on it. Like there's right. all this fluff that used to be the show and she brings race and real political discussion and stuff that a morning show doesn't have you know, mm. generally, you know, like, and not just sure. like headlines, like she gets into it and they have real discussions. It's, but at the end of the day, it's still what it is, you know? Yeah, sure. We know that you're a big Weezer fan. Or were a big Weezer fan. Oh, was, were, oh you were a big Weezer fan. <laughs> Why is it, do you think, that they can't 
make good songs anymore? That's 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 a big question. <laughs> Part of me sympathizes as someone who's now released albums and as an artist who is not who they were when they started doing comedy like you evolve mm. and you grow and you choose different directions but the difference is i don't feel like i've regressed <laughs> i don't feel like i went from writing what i was writing on those first two albums to going back to the Apu jokes I was telling when I was 17. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, sure. and, and, and it feels like a regression in a lot of ways. It feels like the things that he was talking about in those first two records, when I was 15, 16, 17, whatever, like I, it was like I was looking into the future. Like This is what it feels like to be a 25 year old and trying to figure out life and the the stuff was funny and thoughtful and personal and relatable because it was still feelings a, a lot of the stuff but it, it also there was you know like buddy hollywood i, I still don't know what that's about um but <laughs> to go from from that to wh where they went is confusing because once and then all of a sudden you become 25 and you're hearing the same music, not not the first two records, but the same band, Green Album, Maladroit, Beverly Hills, Hurley, whatever they released after. And you're like, why are they making music for children? Like, mm. this is not, I don't understand what this is. It's like almost like they're doing a bad cover band of the band they were. And maybe some of that is like, hey, it's hard to make a really personal album and then critics destroy it as they did with Pinkerton and then come back and do the same thing again. Or maybe it's, I'm bored of making the same, you know, I want to make a different type of sound. Or maybe it's, okay, I want to go back to what I did, but you can't go back to what you did. Like you can never really go home again. It's not there anymore. Who knows? Or there's of course the Matt Sharp was actually a bigger part of the band than everyone realized <laughs> and he left and everything changed. Of course that, sure. that theory that I subscribe to for quite some time. <laughs> um, which, by the way, if you listen to the Rentals records, um, he does make references to Weezer, some more veiled than Ooh. others, uh, including, the I think, in the song Waiting, which is on the first uh, album. I think, for, what is the first Rentals album? Is it Friends of the Rentals or something? Anyway, whatever the first, Return of the Rentals, that's what it is. Right. Um, he, he mentions... Uh, I'm waiting, I'm waiting on you is the chorus. And then there's a lyric where he says, no more four part barbershop harmonies, which is a reference mm. to Sweet Adeline, which is a cover they did in barbershop fashion, which was a B side on one of their blue album Love. hits. And I asked Matt yes. Sharp that after a concert in 2005 and he verified that is what it was about. <laughs> and I asked him if anyone had ever asked him that question. And he said, no. And he looked very confused as to the fact I was asking him that question <laughs> as he had just gotten off stage. And all of a sudden there's some dude there asking him about a specific true, lyric yeah. that he had written a decade previous. Um, anyway, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. It is, it is one of the big questions I think uh, for of my life, certainly, and probably in, in pop culture as a whole. What happened to Weezer? What happened? <laughs> But they I wanted to make a great I wanted to make a documentary about it. Somebody asked me to make a Weezer documentary to discuss that, <laughs> and 
And I'm like, you sure? You really think they're gonna let me make it? Gonna cancel oh, the rivers. pushback will be insane. <laughs> like, are you sure? Okay, so let me let me get this straight. This dude was a huge fan of The Simpsons. Yeah. Then he made a Simpsons documentary, <laughs> and look what happened. And you're telling me this guy was a huge fan of Weezer, and you want him to make a critical documentary now? So they Terry said no. Terry Gilliam is gonna be furious. <laughs> <laughs> Why Terry Gilliam? Oh, oh man. Uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about is a lot of comedians seem to be thrust into uh, acting, mm. despite not having, uh, you know, the training or anything. We know um, you did the film uh, about uh, the the Steve film, the oh, film that Steve, Steve loves. Saying uh, I did the film is is I, I had one line where uh, I'm a businessman in the back of a taxi. And I say, because there's a cross, the, the, I don't know, I don't know, spoiler alert for all you, all you wanted to hear or, right, or yeah, watch all about Steve, the Sandra You're really classic. ruining it for a lot of people, but go on. 7% on RottenTomatoes.com. Still, <laughs> still, all these years later. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, so um, the film is about this woman who falls in love with this guy named Steve and she's a crossword maker. And right. after falling in love with them, after one date, she makes the next day's crossword all about Steve's life and then right. gets fired and decides to search slash stalk him uh, across <laughs> the country since I believe he's a cameraman, TV cameraman. And so I'm a, I'm a, a businessman in the back of a taxi cab doing this puzzle and I'm frustrated and I say, this is bullshit. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's really me doing a film. I got chills. <laughs> your catchphrase. I mean, I, I still got it. Oh yeah, you haven't lost bullshit. it. You haven't lost it. I yet. haven't lost it. That was uh, a guy named Phil Trail's first film. I remember he was like, "This is my first film," and I felt so bad because I'd read the scripts. They kept sending new scripts, and I, even though I only had the one line, and each script I, I, I would read out of curiosity was getting progressively worse. Oh, like wow. they kept digging a bigger and bigger hole, <laughs> and I just remember thinking, "Man, this is your first film." You're not going to make another film. Oh. <laughs> it was so bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, cause the thing I wanted to ask you, because yeah. uh, I'd, I'd, I'd not seen you in anything as an actor. So I, I uh, went to our favorite uh, website, Wikipedia, and there was a great line uh, that I just loved. It says, um, he also played a supporting role in the 2016 film Five Nights in Maine, although none of his scenes were included in the final 75-minute cut of the film. <laughs> now, you don't write your own Wikipedia page. I'm no, sure, that would I'm be, sure that would be I'm sad sure and pathetic, yeah. But whoever does, they felt the need to include that the film is only 75 minutes long. That is a very short <laughs> film. They didn't, they didn't want to make the film 80 minutes and include your scenes. <laughs> so... I mean, honestly, it, it would have been 77 76 even it was honestly well the, i'm uh, i don't need to retell it. i did i told the story on my netflix special but it's still very aggravating <laughs> very aggravating i wasn't you in that film you don't have to repeat the story i just uh i just wanted to know if you know who writes your wikipedia page <laughs> i i do not but i'm very appreciative of the fact that people know that there is a version of this film that exists in some hard drive where I play the main character's right. best friend. And it's and I have very 
it, it's me doing a dramatic film too, which is oh, man. and it's the main character's wife dies in a car accident, <laughs> and it's a year later, and I'm cons- <laughs> I'm consoling David Oyelowo, and and not and and I asked for the footage. Like, can I at least have the footage? for my own purposes to, to have like yeah. something like to have scenes with David Oyelowo is a, is a, is a great thing. And they yeah. would not, they would not give me the scenes. That is unfair. It is unfair. Well, unless, for- unless I was very bad and then, okay. Do you, do you not even have a picture? No. Oh man. Before the ground. No evidence Before exists outside of emails <laughs> and things like, yeah, this is, yeah. There's no evidence. And a Netflix <laughs> special. And a Netflix special. Before um, before uh, before you let you go, because we've taken up a lot of your time. uh, The one thing that I did want to ask, I don't know if you could tell that I'm not as white as my two friends. (laughs) I didn't want to assume. Yeah, I So so the other another thing that really resonates with me is uh, your favorite fruit. Oh yeah. And uh, as soon as I, the first time I heard you say, man, you want to do a podcast called Mango Talk, I got fucking excited. And I don't, probably shouldn't have got as excited <laughs> as I did. Um, but I played my, uh, I played my mum that bit um, because she's, uh, she's, so she's from Malaysia, but she's Indian Malaysian. Yeah. Uh, she completely disagreed with you about the Alfonso <gasps> Mango. So I want you to out my mum on it. It's too sweet. She said it's too sweet. Right. It's it's a mango. <laughs> it's too sweet. What do you mean? Are you, are you stubborn Indian? Auntie, lady. are you more into the more bitter mangoes? I'm looking for a mango with less taste well, I mean, and if, flavor in it. The other thing she does is she eats the, the mango with the skin on. She just bites the mango. Wow! She eats, eats the entire. The only thing she can't eat, obviously, is the stone in the middle. But she eats from start to finish, the skin inwards. Is that a thing people do? She says all Indian. She says all Indian people do it. I've never seen it. My God, that's like eating a container. Like you're eating. It's like <laughs> you it's get like a kiwi, you get right? The... Like eating the outside of a kiwi. It's just this. Yeah, it's mad. <laughs> it's like who gets chips and eats the box that it comes in? Do you know what I mean? Like it's. Well, to be fair, I've never tried the 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 skin of the Alfonso mango, so maybe. Man, I don't I mean, know. If, if you do, I'd like you to remember this conversation and not get angry. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to forget this. I, I promise yeah. you. I, I'm going to text my mom after this. Like, is this a thing? Do people eat skin? Uh, so before we start this outro, I just want to say that I am very sorry to my mom. <laughs> so this is one thing I want to clarify. Does she slice the mango and then eat the skin or does she bite into it like it's an apple oh no yeah she 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 slices it she's not a maniac right. but she eats the, but the, she just like necks the whole thing nothing left on the plate yeah waste not one not is my mum's motto I'll also say I'll also say minor big fan of you big fan of you and <laughs> your work I'm a big fan thank yeah. you for thank you for letting us annoy you all those years by making loud music but that is honest like tell me why it's a good thing to eat the skin of a mango it's, it's impossible to enjoy the skin of a mango. Plus, I have a I have a, an uncle who eats an entire apple, and I'm talking about all the core. That's the bunker. stems. Isn't it dangerous to seeds. eat the seeds of an apple? Well, yeah, he's going to grow a tree from his tummy. I mean, unless it makes you a, you know, a fairly generic average uncle guy, then it's not really <laughs> a disease you need to worry about. 
Hurry, come to Poland. How cool was that? Kieran, oh, are you man. over it yet? Have you stopped shaking? No, is the short answer. <laughs> you know what? I watched it... his um, special again the other day, and I just uh-huh. the guy is in there with my in my top five, I think, comedians. I love. He's that so. Good. So it was fun. so good talking to him. It was great talking about things like Weezer and and, and uh, Whoopi Goldberg, all the W's. All my <laughs> um, yeah, he was brilliant. Thank you so much, Hari. Uh, this is normally the time when we would sort of tee up next week's episode, but we're in a bit of a unique position of not actually knowing what's going to go out. Uh, for episode nine, uh, just because of timing reasons, but oh, there week. will be an episode nine next week. Oh, you think um, that's unprofessional? The truth is, we <laughs> do know, and we're keeping you on edge. It's a surprise. No, next week is uh, no. Next week, uh, this is what we're doing is we're teeing you up for the inevitable disappointment of episode nine, the best of season one of the Paper <laughs> Um <laughs> But no, we won't be doing. We will have an interview next week, but we don't know who with. Uh, however, we have or we do have episode ten, um, oh, which will be the last episode in this first run of series. And so, I just want to respond to an email that we got. Thanks to everyone who gets in touch with the show, by the way. But Rhiannon messaged us this week. Uh, she's being very nice and complimentary about the show. Uh, and she says, first, I think Joe said that the show will stop soon. Are you going to be making more? And why so few episodes? I always make sure I only listen once a week so I don't run out for too long. Yes, we are stopping soon purely because of time. The initial plan was just to do 10 episodes. We were going to see how it goes. We've really enjoyed it. We've had amazing feedback. So we will definitely be back for a second run uh, next year. We already have some guests lined up that we're super excited about. Um, but yeah, basically, we'd we'd planned out the autumn winter for codes in the clouds and we'll just be a bit too busy to do a full series or commit to keep doing a full series however there will be other episodes or little bonus bits coming out uh between now and when we do the second run of shows i really hate it when a podcast you listen to just all of a sudden says right and that's it uh, we'll be back in I don't yeah. know when that frustrates oh, that the hell out of me so I just wanted other. to be up front from the start and let you know right there's 10 <laughs> episodes and then we'll be back for another run uh, early next year probably late February early March <laughs> absolutely solid teasing there Joe. Uh, but she said but also now this is controversial but I so this needs clarifying just in case any other listener has picked up on this but she says in the Hazel episode Joe said Kieran I, I, sh- I don't want to. I don't want to have a go at you here, Rhiannon, because you seem nice, but you have spelt Kieran incorrectly. Let's let's set the admittedly Kieran spell spells Kieran. it the weird way. He spells it the uh, not weird. Sorry, <laughs> sorry to my to my Irish friends. Uh, it's for future listeners. It's C I A R A N. That's C I A R A N. Although I would say that calling you Kieran uh, the wrong way in this email is better than. One of our favourite promoters that we used to have who insisted on calling you Siren even when we corrected him. <laughs> that's that's not written down. He would say, Siren, we go Kieran. They go, Yeah, Siren. Also the um, uh, the guy that uh, runs the rehearsal studio, the codes and the clouds rehearsal has been pronouncing my name wrong for ten years and I still haven't had the heart to tell him it's wrong. <laughs> what is it called? It's what is far he far too late now. Kyron. Kyron. 
Chiron, wow. Chiron, yeah. Well, anyway. Um, but I feel like it's been far too long. Yeah, back to Rhiannon. Uh, in the Hazel episode, Joe said Chiron made a Nine Inch Nails <laughs> playlist for him. A long time before he gave a list to Jack. Is he working for Trent Reznor? Is he on a campaign to turn you and everybody into fans? Did the songs change for Joe and Jack? And is this a scandal? I love no, this. it's not a scandal. <laughs> Slow it down. Like a scandal to me. From the I promise you, it's not a scandal. Right. So the One first things, first, first thing to address is that Kieran never made me a Nine Inch Nails playlist. At the start of the year, I watched the movie Disney Pixar film Soul, and the score was by Trent Reznor. And so I text Kieran saying, "I thought Trent Reznor was shit. I really liked the score <laughs> for this film." And so Kieran made me um, a playlist of all the uh, the Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross compositions. He did sneak in three or four Nine Inch Nails songs, but they were they were all just instrumental ones, weren't Didn't they? Just like talk. ambient stuff. That was lovely stuff. There definitely wasn't any of the stuff that uh, Jack had on his playlist. However, I didn't listen to that playlist. Steve, have you listened to it? Yep, 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 yep. What did you think, mate? I want to hear well, it. By the time I got over my initial mistake, because for somewhere in the back of my head, like a sort of promesthesia thing, is like tall and nine inch nails are, are linked. Oh, God. I'm not saying they sound the same. Well, They're just, yeah, no one does. No Do you know what it is? It's I on Kieran's old wallet that he used to have chained to his jeans. I couldn't remember whether it was nine inch nails at all. <laughs> anyway, so they've both been bands that I haven't uh, Velcro wallet paid attention way. to and, and people absolutely love. But anyway, mm. um so I was kind of expecting something different. And so it was initially it was a shock and my main thought from from Kieran's playlist, I don't know if this is like representative of Nine Inch Nails like as a whole. It was kind of like a prototype uh, version of like what what we're trying to do now, like or like not directly to us, but like bands like us are trying to do now, like experimental, going over one kind of theme and just exploring like a sonic idea for a song and not being sure. bothered about a, a, you know a, a classic song structure or being any good yeah the reason I say prototype <laughs> is kind of really yeah <laughs> the reason I say prototype is because it's very like obvious like shoehorned in like oh we found this little technique or this idea mm. this synth can do and that's the song and uh, yeah it was just a bit bit dated cool. what, do, do, do you have an opinion on tool well, I don't know because I thought they were Nine Inch Nails in my head. <laughs> and I, I really do Listen, understand what you're talking about. <laughs> Listen, like me, myself, and Kieran are big Tool fans, okay? And I can't explain yeah. why, but I am. I don't know why. I just I love bloody that. love them. And I, every like every few months, I'll go through a phase where I'll listen to. To be fair, I really only listen to two Tool albums, but basically on repeat, and I'll listen to okay. them daily, every day four months and then I'll have a break and then like six months later I'll do the same again I just love it I can't that's help a, that myself. is in the grand scheme of like listening to albums that's a lot yeah it's, it's weird I mean I've been doing this since, since I bought Anima on CD and me and Kieran were both in a shopping centre we got a lift home from my mum and I put the Anima CD in my mum's car and we listened to it on the way home and we were both just looking at each other like we found it this is it. <laughs> this is what we've been looking for our entire lives. So I 
I mean, I love Tool. I can understand why it's maybe difficult for people, especially now, to get into Tool, especially the Tool I love, which is really from like between 1995 and 2001. Uh-huh. But I, I, you know, let's do a playlist. I can put a playlist do together, it. and I'll I'll pick my favourite songs, which I think are you know, also their best songs, and I'll put them in a playlist for you. It won't be too long. I'm I'm sure you'll hate it. I really I try. Th- I think you need to be less apologetic, mate, because it doesn't sound like you're making anyone a mixtape because they're wrong. It sounds like you're going, Um, you're saying to a to some to like a girl when you're a teenager, you're like, look, I know you're gonna say no, but will you go out with me? (laughs) Yeah, you know what? You're right. There's no guilty pleasure, is there? Really? It's like you like. There's no guilty pleasure. You just like. Yeah, it's good or it's bad. I think it's good. So therefore. Steve doesn't know because he thinks they're Nine Inch Nails for starters. Sure. So he's already wrong, but he is also wrong about Tool. Joe, you're wrong about Tool as well. So let's put this, I'll put this playlist together. You, t- Both of you have a listen to it, and I want both of your feedback. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. I'll but listen to it. Let me say this. Is there any chance that everyone else in the world except for Joe and I are wrong, and they are the same band? And <laughs> <laughs> they're very, very, very different. It's because I do think it's a unique thing where you, where what you've done, Steve, is you said something factually incorrect. You've said that Tool are Nine Inch Nails or vice versa, and instead of me going, "No, you're wrong," or "I can see what you're doing," I'm like, "I relate to you <laughs> on a human level. I understand you." Is the artwork similar? No. no, I, I think, think it's, it's I think it's just people like Kieran who have black baggy jeans and those shirts that have flames on. <laughs> the only reason you think they're similar is because it's the only two bands I listen to that aren't post rock music. I love the shirt with the flames on it. It's just taking me back to look like. I never had a shirt with flames on it. Kieran, oh. you're either you're always either wearing the shirt with the flames on or the orange one that says like state penitentiary on the back. <laughs> Ill-fitting, studded <laughs> necklace. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cyberdog is my favourite shop. To be Kieran's favourite shop is Cyberdog. That was exactly what I was about to say. But anyway, thank you very much, listeners. Thank you for getting in touch. Thanks to Hari Kondabolu. Yeah, so back next week. I don't know who our guest is going to oh, be yet. This is, this is going to be Joe Power monologues again, isn't it? <laughs> like with his other podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you want to listen to another podcast good luck finding it I'm not promoting it on here but I did a a sweet jazz monologue the other week (laughs) that's true guys how how are they how are people getting in touch with us Jack what if they want to email me Uh, they could email several different email addresses but the one that they would actually get to us Uh via Uh is info at codesintheclouds.net right okay but what about Instagram Kieran uh, I think it's at Codes Clouds. Ooh. Interesting. Interesting. That sounds familiar. Can is that another handle that they can use? I believe that's our Twitter handle. I don't think you're wrong, Steve. Is there anywhere else that they could find us if they really wanted to? Get on the old Facebook, mate. Or drop the the. Just like yep. Justin Timberlake told you to do in the in the movie. <laughs> and just search Codes in the Clouds. <laughs> But yes, yeah, so uh, so that so it's, that's the end. That's the end of an episode. Sorry, sorry to leave you so soon, listeners. But Here we the go. Lord, the Lord giveth, 
the Lord Paper a Crane. Oh. We'll see you <laughs> next week. <laughs> yeah.